Chapter 2. This Revolting New Sect. Who exactly are they? After torturing two slave girls, an icy bureaucrat deems the cult harmless. But as Ignatius is led in chains to Rome, the Christian sky darkens. Around the year 110, Gaius Plinius Caecilius Secundus, the Roman governor of Bithynia and the northern part of what is today's Turkey, discovered something truly disturbing. His province was crawling with members of a vile and dangerous religious cult called Christians. To Plinius, or Pliny as he is known today to English speakers, that was like opening a kitchen cupboard in your rich aunt's mansion and finding it full of cockroaches. Pliny was someone your rich aunt might have known had she lived during the early 2nd century. He hailed from one of Rome's wealthiest and most aristocratic families. His uncle, also named Pliny and known as Pliny the Elder, had been a famous amateur scientist whose intellectual curiosity had gotten the better of him. He had died of smoke inhalation in AD 70 after sailing into the harbor near Pompeii to take a closer look at the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Pliny the Younger, his official name, had a talent for administration and had chosen a life of government service in the bureaucracy of the Roman Empire Trajan, Emperor Trajan, a military hero whom Pliny admired greatly. Christians! Pliny had heard a little about them, and everything he had heard was bad. Degenerate. That was one of the words for the sect in Pliny's mind. Pliny's friend, the snobbish Roman historian Tacitus, maintained that the Christians were notoriously depraved and called their faith a deadly superstition. They were rumored to indulge in lewd nighttime ceremonies that included group sex, even with the participants' own mothers and children, and the ritual slaughter of infants whose blood they drank to the Romans, who revered the family despite the debaucheries of some of their less lustrous emperors. Such stories were shocking. The worst feature of the Christian religion, however, was that dead Galilean carpenter, or criminal, or traitor, or whatever he was, who had been crucified, with good reason, no doubt, in Judea nearly a century before. A Jew. One of them. One of those stiff-necked, keep-to-themselves atheists who refused to worship the traditional gods. They claimed to have their own god, who was invisible and thus hardly counted as a god. And they were constantly whining about the rule of Rome and yearning for the arrival of a king of their own, whom they called the Messiah, or Anointed One. All educated Romans in the late 1st and sec early 2nd centuries, Tacitus, his fellow historian Suetonius, and the writers Martial, Quintilian, and Juvenal among them, detested the Jews as haters of the human race, and they lumped Christians and Jews together. The Christ crucified carpenter had a Jewish name, Yeshua, or in Greek, Yosus, a version of Joshua, the name of the Jewish biblical hero. But Pliny and the Roman contemporaries probably didn't know that. They called the dead Galilean simply Christus, a ridiculous name, since it came from the Greek for Messiah, and the carpenter had failed abysmally in that kingly role. Or perhaps his name was Christus, a common man's name in the ancient world that meant lucky, was pronounced something like Christus, and that was the name by which the Roman historian Suetonius, another of Pliny's friends, seems to have known Jesus. In their bizarre rites, the Christians worshipped this Christus, or Crestus, this Christ, this Jewish criminal, worshipped him like a god, it was said, a god. Pliny pondered that alien concept in his mind. This Christ was supposed to be alive somewhere or somehow, but hadn't he been dead for some 80 years? It was illegal to be a Christian in 110, and it had been so for some time. Historians are not certain why the Roman imperial government regarded the sect, who 
whose numbers at the time did not exceed 8,000 in an empire of perhaps 60 million, and as arch enemies of the state. Clearly, however, the Christians refused to worship the Roman emperors as gods, and every emperor since Augustus, who reigned when Jesus was born, had been deified either in his lifetime or shortly after his death. Refusing to recognize the emperor's divinity was maestus, treason, setting oneself up against the state, a crime punishable by death. The Jews, of course, took exactly the same position as the Christians, but for nearly two centuries, there had been a tacit arrangement that allowed the Jews to pray to their own god in their synagogues for the emperor's well-being, rather than to have sacrificed directly to either the emperor or the pagan gods. Certainly, the Jews could be hard for Roman officials to handle, while Pliny was governing Bithynia, Jewish groups, outraged, outraged at the special taxes that Rome required them to pay, were plotting riots against Rome in their large communities in Egypt, northern Africa, and the Middle East. And there had been uh, and there had been that ugly business in Judea in the year 70, when the Jewish homeland was ablaze with nationalist uprisings and the Roman army had to raise the entire city of Jerusalem, including the Jewish temple, in order to get rid of the insurgents. But even the Jews seemed preferable to the Christians, who wherever they lived inevitably provoked antipathy, even among their own kinfolk, because their primary loyalties were to their movement and to each other, not to their pagan families and friends. Many Christians were converted Jews themselves, because the first Christian missionaries, such as Paul of Tarsus and his first companions, had also been Jews who preached Christ in the synagogues uh, uh, of every city they visit. Jews who accepted Jesus as the Messiah provoked the antagonism of their fellow Jews who did not. In A.D. 49, Suetonius reported, there had been an uproar in Rome's Jewish quarter at the instigation of Crestus that had led the Emperor Claudius to close down the synagogues and expel the Jews from the city. Nearly a generation later, the Emperor Nero seized upon the general public aversion toward Christians to blame them for the great fire that raged through Rome in A.D. 64 a fire he was accused of having set himself in order to clear the land for some grandiose building projects. Nero ordered a series of sadistic punishments for them, crucifixions, dressing them in animal skins and having them torn to pieces by dogs, setting them afire as human torches. Around AD 90, the emperor Domitian, notorious for his cruelty and his determination to crush all political and religious oppression, brutally persecuted atheists, suspected Jews and Christians, among Rome's aristocratic families, including his own. By the time Pliny became governor of Bithynia, sometime after 106, Roman policy was clear. You could charge someone with being a Christian. It was simple as writing up a bill of complaint and presenting it to the local magistrate. And that person was in possibly serious trouble. It was the parade of accused Christians into his courtroom that first alerted Pliny to the fact that the notoriously depraved sect had spread all the way to north to Bithynia a rich agricultural and trading colony positioned on the southern shore of the Black Sea and was growing rapidly there. That was perhaps inevitable. Just to the west of Bithynia lay the prosperous port cities of Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Greece. Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, where the Christian missionary Paul had preached his message of Christ crucified and sent his letters to the Christian communities. Galatia, whose towns of Iconium, Lystra, and Derby were among Paul's stops, directly abutted Bithynia, and Paul had even stopped briefly in Bithynia itself. The Apostle Peter had addressed one of his letters to Christians in Bithynia and other nearby regions. So, since nearly everyone in Bithynia hated the Christians, their refusal to eat meat from animals slaughtered and sacrificed to the gods was said to be depressing prices at butcher shops. 
Pliny was soon trying large numbers of them in the tribunal that he headed as, prov as provincial governor. Despite the presence of the sect of well-born ladies and gentlemen like Flavius Clemens and Domitella, Christianity had a reputation, reputation as a slum religion, a faith for shoemakers, laundry workers, slaves, and other lowlife who had few, if any, legal rights to begin with. Ragged, malnourished, their very bones deformed in many cases by years of hard labor, these despised men and women seemed to be drawn to their strange Christ, who had taken the form of a slave, as Paul had written, even though he was supposed to be divine. The Christians repeated among themselves the other words of Paul's, that in Christ there is no longer slave or free. Paul had written those words, which sounded to people of plenty of class like calls for mass mutiny, in a letter to the Christian community in Galatia, right next door to Bithynia. Trajan had recently issued an edict from Rome banning secret societies and refusing to allow their members to eat together, an edict that seemed specifically directed toward Christians and their treasonous designs. Still, Pliny, dutifully official, dutiful official that he was, did not quite know what to do with all these wretched folk, men and women, adolescents and oldsters, city dwellers and peasants, who were dragged cringing before him. Some of them were denied that they were now or ever had been Christians. Others admitted that, yes, they had once worshipped Christ, but that was then, and they were now perfectly willing to revile his name, offer incense to the divine emperor, or do anything else that Pliny demanded of them, in order to show that they were as good Roman subjects as anyone else. So Pliny sat down and wrote to his superior in Rome, the emperor Trajan, asking for advice. Pliny was famous for his elegantly written letters, batches of which were peri periodically published, copied out by professional scribes, and circulated for the delectation of Roman literati, who relished a good Latin turn of phrase. He was also slavishly attached to his hero, Trajan, who was widely liked by his subjects because of his humane and progressive administration and his blameless moral life, a relief to the Romans after the depravities of Nero and Domitian. Pliny pestered Trajan with letter after letter of the, on the most minute administrative details. Neither he nor his emperor, however, regarded Christians as anything more than passing nuisances. On the order of a malfunctioning sewage system or a fire hazard in a public building that required official attention. At the same time, Pliny took the precaution of arresting a couple of young slave women who happened to be deaconesses in the Christian community and conducting an inquiry. That meant having the two girls tortured until he was satisfied that they were telling the truth. It was standard Roman procedure. First, you stretched your victims out on the rack and cranked at both ends until you yanked some of their bones out of the joints. Then you moved on to the claw, a hook-like contraption that worked its way along the victim's exposed flesh, tearing it to ribbons. And then, by then nearly everyone talked. The terrified deaconesses told Pliny everything they knew. Pliny dutifully passed along the information to Trajan. The weekly worship services at which Christians chanted hymns in honor of Christ as if to God, as Pliny phrased it. The oaths that Christians swore to refrain from theft, robbery, adultery, and breaches of the peace, the gatherings they used to, used to have before Trajan's band on secret societies, at which they shared food of an ordinary harmless kind. Not the blood of babies, Pliny wrote. Yes, the cult was degenerate, he informed Trajan, but it also seemed innocuous. Christians struck Pliny as a bit strange, but also as ordinary, law-abiding people who happened to hold beliefs and engage in rituals that were incomprehensible to him and other Romans. Pliny also informed the emperor about how he planned to handle the trials. All the accused would be asked three times to abjure Christianity. Those who refused after the third opportunity would be executed immediately, except for Roman citizens, 
who would be sent to Rome for trial, just as Paul, a Roman citizen, had been taken to Rome from Jerusalem so for, some, for trial some 50 years before. Trajan's response to Pliny came in the form of a rescript, an official reply carrying the force of law to a local administrator's inquiry. The emperor agreed that Pliny was following exactly correct, the correct procedure, one that should be followed henceforth. Here were the new rules. All Christians who appeared in court were to be given a chance to recant. If they repented of their faith and burnt a little incense to one of the gods or to Caesar, they were to be pardoned on the spot. Furthermore, Roman officials were not to initiate arrests of suspected Christians on their own, and no Christian could be condemned on an anonymous denunciation. Those bringing charges against them would have to prove their case in open court. This don't-ask-don't-tell policy, which Trajan's successor, Hadrian, reaffirmed in another rescript in 124, became the official position of the Roman Empire toward Christians for nearly a century and a half. In some ways, Christians were worse off than before the, than they had been before, because it was now spelled out in writing that professing the faith could cause them to be hauled in front of a court to face a possible sentence of capital punishment. The form of execution was usually horrible. Crucifixion, burning alive, scorching with red-hot irons, being gored by wild bulls or eaten alive by lions or leopards in the violent circus shows that the bloodthirsty Roman masses enjoyed. Alternatively, Christians might be sentenced to slavery in the imperial mines, where they would be worked to death on starvation rations. Rome was clearly afraid of of these people whose first loyalty was to Christ, not Caesar, and who had the courage to die for their faith. In other ways, however, the Christians were vastly better off under Trajan and his successors than they had been before. The persecution of Christians was a sporadic and local matter that depended on the whim of provincial governors, or of the emperor himself, who was free to suspend the sanction if he wished. Under those conditions, Christianity flourished. By 150, less than 40 years after Trajan's rescript, the number of Christians in the Roman Empire had quintupled to more than 30,000. By the end of the middle, by the middle of the third century, Christians numbered nearly 1.2 million, just under 2% of the empire's total population, but an astounding figure, figure for religion that had begun with a, a few frightened people huddled in a room in Jerusalem. Nonetheless, even under Trajan's relatively lenient policies, Christians suffered for their faith. One of the most notable was Ignatius bishop of Christian community at Antioch in northern Syria. Ignatius was a remarkable figure because he had personally, during his own lifetime, witnessed the entire growth of Christianity from the days of Paul onwards. Widely circulated stories held that Ignatius had even met Jesus himself as a little boy, perhaps while his parents were traveling on pilgrimage to the Holy Land. The Gospel of Mark recounts an incident in which Jesus took a small child in his arms in Capernaum and said to his disciples, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Surely some Christians said the small child had been Ignatius. The story is not implausible. Antioch, one of the earliest centers of Christianity outside the Holy Land, lay about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It was a sprawling, sophisticated city, fourth largest in the Roman world after Rome itself, Alexandria and Egypt, and Carthage in North Africa. Antiochenes worshipped every god and goddess in the Greek, Roman, and Syrian pantheons, but the favorites were Bacchus, the god of wine, and Tyche, the goddess of luck and patroness of Antioch, whose statues could be seen everywhere in the city. There, were also a there was also a flourishing Jewish community at Antioch. 
into which Ignatius might have been born. Within a decade after Jesus' birth, there was a good-sized Christian community. Uh, within a decade after Jesus' death, there was a good-sized Christian community in Antioch as well. Both Paul and Peter preached at Antioch, converting both Jews and Gentiles. The Gospel of Matthew was believed to have been written there, and the evangelist Luke was said to have been born in that city. It was in Antioch, sometime around AD 40, that the followers of Jesus first acquired the name Christians. The Acts of the Apostles tells us a name that Christians at Ignatius himself adopted with enthusiasm in his enthusiasm in his letters. Antioch's Christian community, thriving from its earliest days, although occasionally marked by quarrels between Jewish and Gentile converts, and headed for a time by Peter himself, was a gateway to the East for missionary activities. The Christians lived amidst the grandeur that Rome conferred on the world. Asia Minor's luxury inspired the conquerors to expand upon the opulence they found there. Imperial Rome was not nothing if not an occupier, but it was neither barbaric nor impoverished, and when it enveloped a country or a city it stamped everything it found there with its unmistakable imprint, often making significant improvements. In Asia Minor, in particular, Roman architects and craftsmen added opulent embellishments to the luxurious apartments that existed there long before they arrived. As a result, although distant from the episode, from the center of the empire, those who lived in the Roman-occupied cities of Asia Minor were much more than remote agricultural workers, scraping by uncultured and rude tents and huts. Instead, their well-established cities drew the admiration and appreciation of their conquerors, who remodeled and expanded buildings, gardens, and other facilities in much more than just a utilitarian manner. Thus, the subject territories continued to provide artistic, cultural, and educational opportunities unrivaled in most of the non-Roman world. Remains of what Rome created in the region show the breadth and ambition of its influence. It was into this Antiochian world, bustling with commerce, glittering with wealth, and in its Christian quarters, alive with excitement over the new faith in the Son of God who had been to become human and taken on human suffering, that Ignatius came of age. Perhaps he remembered the Galilean from that childhood journey south so long ago. The strong arms that had lifted him high, the kindly eyes that told him not to be afraid of all those rough fishermen with their strange way of talking, the voice, gentle yet insistent, with authority that seemed to come directly from God. Ignatius likely knew Peter and Paul, perhaps Luke and Barnabas, Paul's companions, and also became close to the aged apostle and evangelist John, who is said to have died in Ephesus around the year 100. Certainly, Ignatius's writing showed the influence of John, making it quite plausible that he was John's disciple. We don't know very much else about Ignatius, however, except that he eventually became bishop of Antioch's Christian community, probably the third in line after Peter, and another bishop named Evodius. According to one tradition, Peter laid his hands on Ignatius and gave him the mantle of leadership. Eventually, after he had served as bishop for 30 years, Ignatius ran afoul of the authorities on account of his Christian faith and was sentenced to die in Rome. According to some, it was Trajan himself, sojourning at the imperial palace in Antioch, who personally passed judgment on the elderly bishop after Ignatius defied an imperial command that Christians join with the pagans in worshipping the Roman gods. It is unlikely, however, that the enlightened Trajan would have bothered to attack the sect he regarded as only a minor nuisance. It is more likely that Ignatius somehow offended the local authorities in Antioch, 
In any event, Ignatius was condemned to be eaten by wild animals in the arena, and he was transported to Roman chains to meet his death there in front of the screaming crowds. Why the execution was scheduled to take place in Rome is a matter for conjecture. Perhaps Ignatius was a Roman citizen, or perhaps, as Christian leader in the empire's fourth largest city, he was regarded as a prized prisoner to show off in the stadium. Under a guard of ten Roman soldiers, he made the long, slow, mostly overland trek westward, across Asia Minor, and along the Roman road that wound through the Balkan regions in Greece, where he was to be put on a ship headed for Italy. As he wrote in a letter, I am already battling with beasts on my journey from Syria to Rome. On land and at sea, by night and by day, I am in chains with ten leopards around me, or at least with a band of guards who grow more brutal with the better they are treated. However, the wrongs they do make me a better disciple. News of his fate preceded him, and everywhere he stayed, delegations of Christians came to greet him as a celebrity of the faith. He wrote letters to those Christian communities. Seven of the letters are still intact. After he moved on to the next town. In fact, Ignatius spent many months on the last journey uh, in some of the cities in Asia Minor, Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, and Philadelphia, that were among the seven churches in Asia listed in the Book of Revelation. Ignatius was a living second-generation connection between these widespread Christians and the, and the apostles, Paul, Peter, and John, who had actually witnessed Jesus' ministry on earth. The pastoral letters that Ignatius wrote to the church in Ephesus, Romans, Philadelphia, and Smyrna were modeled on these Paul, Peter, and John, quoting freely from Paul's own letters, the Jewish scriptures, he knew their Greek translation very well, and the four Gospels, which were widely circulated in the Christian communities to, by then. My spirit is devoted to the cross, which is a stumbling block to believers, but salvation and eternal life to us. Ignatius wrote in a letter to the Ephesians, echoing what Paul had written to the Christians in Corinth 50 years earlier, become wise as serpents in everything, guileless forever as the dove. Ignatius, Ignatius wrote elsewhere in the paradise in a paraphrase of lines from Matthew's gospel, Jesus is the door to the Father. He wrote in a language that echoed John's gospel. In his letters, Ignatius begged the Christians in the little communities he visited to remain steadfast in their faith, reminding them that the churches should unite behind the leaders they call bishops, and cautioning them to remember that the Jesus Christ at the center of their faith was truly God's son, but had also become a real human being who had suffered in the flesh. For there were already some who argued that Jesus was no more than a good man, and others who said that he was a divine spirit in human disguise, who had merely pretended to die on the cross. Ignatius worried that the church would split up into quarreling factions and forget its root in Judaism and the God of Israel. Avoid, therefore, the evil spirit, evil sprouts that bring forth deadly fruit. Merely to taste this fruit is to meet with sudden death. Such are not the plants of the Father. If they were, they would appear as branches on the cross, and their fruit would be immortal. As for himself, Ignatius actually looked forward to his martyrdom. He refused the entreaties of the Christians in Rome to let them do something about having his sentence commuted. There was probably little they could do anyway. In a letter to the Romans, Ignatius proclaimed that under the grinding of the beast's teeth into, the, into his flesh, he would become the wheat of God, ready to be made into the pure bread of Christ. His dream of martyrdom came true. Sometime between AD 98 and the last year of Trajan's reign in, 19, in 117, the brave old bishop reportedly died on the sands of the Flavian Amphitheater in Rome, the structure still standing, known today as the Colosseum, and his remains were brought back to Antioch to be buried. When he died, however, Ignatius left behind a disciple 
who would carry on the word-of-mouth Christian tradition that he himself had received from Jesus' apostles. That disciple was a man called Polycarp, a resident of Smyrna. Believed to have been born in AD 69, he was at least 30 when he first heard Ignatius preach. But according to tradition, he was already a Christian by then, having been born into a Christian family. Like Ignatius, Polycarp was said to have been a disciple, one of the last disciples, of the aged apostle John at Ephesus. So he was another second-generation link to the time of Jesus' ministry. When John mentioned an angel in the church of Smyrna, to whom Christ had promised the crown of life in the book of Revelation, he may have had Polycarp in mind. By the time Ignatius met him on the way to Rome, Polycarp had become bishop of Smyrna. After Ignatius was transported out of Smyrna to Troas, farther up the Aegean coast, he wrote letters, not only to the Smyrnans, Smyrnians as a community, but to Polycarp personally. In his message to Polycarp, Ignatius praised the holiness of Christian marriage and also the life of celibacy that he and Polycarp had chosen. Your mind is grounded in God as on an immovable rock, he wrote. Polycarp was among the most beloved of early Christian leaders. According to one of his disciples, Irenaeus, who later became Bishop of Leon in Gaul, a dispute arose among the early churches over whether Christians should celebrate Easter, the feast of Jesus' resurrection, on the day of the Jewish Passover, or as now, on the Sunday after Passover. Many of the churches of the East, including in Asia Minor, opted for celebrating Easter on Passover in recognition that Jesus was the perfect paschal lamb, while the churches in the West kept Easter on the following Sunday, because that was the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. Polycarp was selected unanimously for the churches in Asia Minor to travel to Rome and argue the Eastern position to Rome's bishop, Anicetus. Polycarp and Anicetus never did resolve their differences in Easter, but they did agree on that they were united, that they were united in worship of Christ. Around the same time, Polycarp wrote a letter to the Christians of Philippi, to whom Paul had also written, in which he argued, as Ignatius had, against Christians who refused to believe that Jesus had been a real human being and not a god in disguise. Whoever does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is Antichrist, Polycarp wrote. That letter, like those of Ignatius, was filled with quotations from the Jewish and Christian scriptures. Polycarp headed the Christian church in Smyrna until he was 86 years old. As for the Christians themselves, the very fact that they were becoming part of the urban landscape in the period of quasi-tolerance that Trajan had initiated started to turn their pagan neighbors actively against them in many places. Whispers that the Christians were atheists who refused to worship beloved local deities began to surface everywhere. The pagans feared that if the ancestral gods deserted their cities, they would be prey to natural disasters and economic catastrophes. Every time there was an earthquake in Asia Minor, it seemed, an outburst of local violence against Christians was sure to follow. So it was not surprising that in 155, during the reign of Hadrian's adopted son, Antoninus Pius, who was in turn the adoptive father of the famous emperor Marcus Aurelius, Polycarp found himself dragged in front of the hastily convened Roman tribunal in Smyrna. A pagan mob had for days been calling for Christian blood. They first threw the group of Christians, including a teenage boy, to the wild animals in the Smyrnaean arena. Then someone remembered the old bishop who was in charge of the in charge of all these Christians, Polycarp. Down with the atheists! Let Polycarp be found! The crowd began to chant. Polycarp was at first not eager for martyrdom, and he let his friends spirit him away 
to a series of farmhouses outside the city. When he was finally tracked down, he offered no resistance, welcoming his pursuers and ordering that they be given food and drink. He also asked to be allowed to pray before being taken away. When they said he could, he stood and began praying in their presence. When he finished two hours later, those who had come to get him marveled at his constancy in spite of his age, and some even expressed regret over the whole affair, acknowledging that they had not been sent out to capture a desperado, but a godly and venerable old man. He was taken straight to the stadium, where a Roman proconsul was waiting to try him on capital charges. The crowd was roaring like the very animals who had, who had fed on his fellow Christians a few days earlier. But Polycarp was listening to the, another voice that seemed to come from heaven. It was saying, be, ba- be brave, Polycarp, and act like a man. The story of what happened next comes, to, comes from the oldest surviving account of a Christian martyrdom written down by one of Polycarp's own community at Smyrna. The proconsul, taking pity on the aged man just as those who arrested him had done, offered the bishop a deal. All he would have to do was say, away with the atheists, just once, and he could go free. That was not so bad. Polycarp fixed a stern glance on the yelling crowd, looked up to heaven with a groan, and complied. Then the proconsul asked him to do just one more little thing, revile Christ in the name of Caesar. That the bishop could not do. For 86 years, I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong, Polycarp declared. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul ordered Polycarp to be burned alive right in the arena. As he was tied to the stake above the pyre, he prayed continuously. The fire was lit, and then, his followers remembered, something miraculous happened. The flames shot up around him like a golden veil, but his body would not burn, glowing instead like bread baking or gold melting in a jeweler's furnace. Finally, in exasperation, someone stabbed the old man to death. His burning blood was said to have put out the fire. The Christians of Smyrna never forgot Polycarp. They spirited his bones away to give a grave that would become a place in honor of those who revered the martyrs. And as the years passed, and the number of Christians doubled every couple of decades, there would be much more hostility and many more martyrs, until eventually the forces of imperial Rome itself would be arrayed in all their might to stamp out the new religion once and for all. Because, of course, the Christian faith did not die with Polycarp. He had already personally passed it on. This faith that he had received from the Apostle John himself at the end of the first century to Irenaeus and other great Christians at the end of the second century. Some 45 years before Polycarp's martyrdom, the Emperor Trajan, writing to his local administrator Pliny, had hoped that offering suspected Christians an opportunity to recant at trial, such a reasonable thing to do, would quietly eradicate the new and dangerous cult without much bloodshed. For Pliny had written so confidently, from this one you can easily conclude what a number of people may be reformed if they are given a chance for repentance. Now both Pliny and Trajan were dead, and the great number had never materialized. What was materializing instead were greater and greater numbers of new Christians. Three very early Christian books that almost made it into the Bible. Clement's letter, Hermes' angelic vision, and a manual called the Didache were probably used by Christians who didn't yet have the Gospels. Some were just silly, recounting fabulous stories, for example, about the baby Jesus playfully molding live sparrows out of mud. Some were considered dangerously erroneous, and were therefore rejected by a majority of Christian communities. 
Some were known only in copies of copies, fragmentary and variable, their originals long lost. For whatever reason, any number of ancient Judeo-Christian documents never made it into the anthology now known as the Holy Bible. Most were easily dismissed. For a few of the books that would be excluded, however, the call was very close. Three such works in particular stand out. The Epistle of Clement to the Corinthians, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, uh, meaning teaching, were all were written late in the first century or very early in the second. Clement's letter and the Didache, in fact, are among the oldest surviving works of Christian literature, not including the Bible. Open now and only by historians and theology students, if at all, the three contain little that is not included in the books that did become the New Testament, yet each of them shed its own light on Christian life in the late 1st and early 2nd centuries. What's more, by the very fact that they could be omitted, they demonstrate that there was a wealth of material available from which the biblical compilers could pick and choose. In short, assembling the New Testament was hardly a matter of having to scrounge up any little scrap that could be found. The exact date of Clement's letter is controversial, ranging from about as early as AD 68 to not much later than about AD 97. Its author apparently spent time with Paul in Philippi in AD 57. Paul mentions Clement in Philemon 4.3 and perhaps traveled to Corinth as well. After Paul and Peter and most of the other apostles were murdered, Clement was a logical choice to govern the church at Rome and he was selected to, to do just that. He had read Paul's letters of instruction to the early churches, and when that troublesome church at Corinth erupted in yet another scandal, he wrote to it, just as Paul had done. Though Clement's letter does not contain his name, historians are just about unanimous in ascribing it to him. For centuries, it was incomplete, but a full manuscript was, was discovered in 1875. Clement chastised the Corinthians for kicking out some of their leaders, whose sermons they found wearisome, to make room for newer preachers, and for providing no retirement benefits for those they expelled. He also said that churches should be held at scheduled times and that planning and order was important. He suggested emulating the discipline of the Roman legions, and he urged loyalty to the empire and recommended praying for its rulers. He sharply re rejected erotic art, instructing the Corinthians that morality was more important than aesthetics and his text indicates that the doctrine of the Trinity, God and three persons, was held by Christians from its earliest days. Clement also figures in the Shepherd of Hermas, in which he appears as a prominent member of the church in Rome. Hermas is a descriptive narrative, a lengthy allegorical work attributed to the brother of Pius I, Bishop of Rome from AD 140 to 155. Because it was written in Greek, it may have been better known among the Eastern Christians than in the Western Church. When it, appears, when it appeared is a matter of much debate, with the year 160 given as the outside date, and the latter part of the first century at the earliest. Hermas, de Hermas depicts a series of revelations experienced by a slave who lived in Rome. The pastor is an angel dressed in the shepherd's garb whose mission is to instruct the slave in the Christian way. The angel provides the slaves, the angel provides five visions, 12 mandates, and 10 parables, or similitudes, all stressing the importance of repenting from sin and adhering strictly to the Christian moral code and precepts. Hermas, while popular in the early church, eventually came to be regarded as a useful but not inspired. Tertullian, a follower of the rigid Montanus doctrine, rejected it in disgust for what he saw 
as its wrong-headed belief that Christians could be forgiven if they committed serious sins after baptism. He called it the Shepherd of the Adulterers. 19th century researchers revived scholarly interest in it, pointing out that, whatever its contents, it was, much, it was as much a work of historical importance as the paintings in the catacombs. As for the Didache, it is a handbook of sorts, a manual for, in Christianity for those who lacked access to copies of the Gospels or Paul's epistles. It begins by stating the case. There are two ways, one of life and one of death, and there is a great difference between the two ways. The ways of life is this. First of all, thou shalt love the God that made thee. Secondly, thy neighbor as thyself. And all things whatsoever thou wouldst have not, wouldst not have befall thyself, neither do to one, unto another. But the way of death is this. First of all, it is evil and full of a curse, murders, adulteries, lusts, fornications, thefts, idolatries, magical arts, witchcrafts, plunderings, false witnessing, uh, hypocrisies, doubleness of heart, treachery, pride, malice, stubbornness, covetousness, foul speaking, jealousy, boldness, exaltation, boastfulness. These words and the rest of the book's 16 chapters were written by the 12 apostles themselves, the Didache claims. Some historians suggest that it was a product of the First Apostolic Council, held in AD 50. Like Clement's epistle, it was lost for many centuries, rediscovered in a library in Constantinople in 1873. It consists of moral instructions, including guidelines for prayer, worship, baptism, fasting, and the communion service or Eucharist. Abortion opponents cite it explicitly and historically very early. Condemnation of the practice. Do not kill children, either by abortion or after birth. It is one of the first texts, if not the very first, to add to the Lord's Prayer a doxology, for thine is the power and the glory until all ages. None of these three books is read much in modern times. As examples of the earliest Christian literature, however, their value is incalculable. Primitive and problematical they may be, but they open another window from a perspective outside the New Testament into the lives of the first of those who were drawn to the person and teachings of Christ Jesus. As Christians move across Rome's empire, some take on the forbidding lands to the east. Syria Christians send its missionaries to the war-torn states of Mesopotamia, where a composite book of the Gospels is written, as well as one of the first hymnals. The triumph of Christianity in its first three centuries was a triumph over the Roman Empire, which lay generally to the west of its birthplace in, Ro- in Jerusalem. To the east of Jerusalem lay another empire, Persia, against which the Romans and their forerunners, the Greeks, engaged in intermittent war. For 11 centuries, five of them before Christ and six after. Not until the 20th century would the Christians progress in the East as they did in the West, but it was not for lack of trying. Between the two empires stretched a wide and lush plain, bounded by two great rivers, the Tigris on the East and the Euphrates on the West, rising in the Armenian mountains south of the Black Sea and moving southeastward in a V, finally joining for the last 75 miles and flowing into the Persian Gulf. The plain is called Mesopotamia, literally in Greek, between the rivers. And for 1,100 years, it was disputed territory, occupied occupied now by Persians, now by Greeks or Romans, uh, a perpetual battleground. At the dawn of the Christian era, Mesopotamia and the the mountainous country to the north and east 
culminated through three buffer state kingdoms. Osrohone, Osrohone, Adabene, and Armenia. The first two would soon vanish from history, but the third, Armenia, would endure as a nation for the next 2,000 years. Tough, implacable, resolutely Christian, and right into the 20th century, paying for its faith in blood, oppression, and sorrow. Yet it was to Osrohane that the faith came first. Came, it was said, in the form of a letter signed by Jesus of Nazareth himself, a reply to an appeal from King Agbar, the black of Osrohane's Arab dynasty. Abgar was ill. Would Jesus come and cure him? In the letter, Jesus ostensibly commends Abgar's faith, but says he can do nothing until he has been t- taken up, after which he'll send a disciple. And the 4th century church historian Eusebius tells that after Jesus' death and resurrection, the apostle Thomas sent to Osrohine a disciple named Adai, in Greek, Thaddeus, one of the 70 commissioned by Jesus in Luke 10.1. A history entitled The Doctrine of Adai, written about 400, details Adai's ministry in Osrohene's capital, Edessa, a city known by, to Abraham by its ancient name, Jorge. Alexander the Great's successors renamed Osrohene as Odessa, it's now Urfa in Turkey, and not far from it, an entire Roman legion had been annihilated when one of King Abgar's predecessors led it into a Persian trap. The Romans never again fully trusted either Osrohene or the Arabs. The doctrine tells of Adai healing the alien Abgar, converting him to Christianity, and making Osrohene the first Christian kingdom. It records that they were that many were persuaded, not coerced, into into the faith by the signs and miracles wrought by Adai and his disciples, and these erected a church later destroyed in a flood. Adai, it continues, died peacefully, was buried with high honors, and succeeded by his presbyter Agai, the royal robe maker, whose preaching greatly furthered the success of the mission. But then disaster struck. When King Abgar's unbelieving son succeeded him, he ordered Agai to quit preaching and go back to making robes. Agai refused and was executed. How much all of this, asks the historian Samuel Hugh Moffat, can be taken as reliable history? In his book, A History of Christianity in Asia, he makes an assessment that a first century mission was launched by the Christians to Edessa under a missionary named Adai. He considers probable that it was sent by Thomas, possible, but that his king became Christian, highly improbable. Though a successor king in Osrohene, a century later, may very well have become the first Christian king. Light was shed on Osrani's early Christianity many centuries later from an unexpected source. For years, scholars had possessed small portions of a Christ- mysterious collection of Jewish Christian hymns called the Odes of Solomon, believed to have been composed in Edessa at a very early date, but too fragmentary for conclusive research. Then, in 1909, a British scholar, A. Rendell Harris, decided to examine a bunch of a bundle of old manuscripts that had lain for years on an office shelf. They turned out to be an almost complete set of the Odes, arguably the first Christian hymn book that disclosed the portraits of the Christian East, whose imagery is already qualitatively different from that of the West. Ode 19, for instance, begins, A cup of milk was offered me, and I drank it in the sweetness of the Lord's kindness. The Son is the cup. And the Father is he who is milked, and the Holy Spirit 
is she who milked him. The Ode describes an early morning worship service with the people stretching out their arms in the form of a cross, as did many early Christians. Though the Jewish influence in the Odes is plain, there is a strong emphasis on love as distinct from the law, and at one point they portray a Messiah who embraces the Gentiles because they have praised me. Finally, while a hymn book is not a theological treatise, the verses clearly follow Paul and John in affirming a belief in the pre-existing Christ. Thus, Ode 41, the Son of the Most High appeared in the perfection of his Father, and light dawned from the world. That was before time in him. The Messiah in truth is one, and he was known before the foundations of the world, that he might give life to persons forever by the truth of his name. After AD 113, the history of Osirene and Edessa becomes far more specific because the Roman Emperor Trajan focused Western attention on Mesopotamia with a military offensive. He drove through the Persian Gulf, claiming the whole region for Rome, including the Persian capital, Ctesiphone, on the Tigris. In 117, however, there came a major reversal. Trajan suffered a stroke and died. His successor, Hadrian, aware that Rome had no hope of sustaining an army big enough to control the whole region, pulled back to the Euphrates, leaving Osirene and, the, and for the moment, a client kingdom of Persia. Thereafter, much more is known of Christian history in Edessa. Over the next half century, two men appear to appear who would shape Christianity in the East for years to come. Both were converts, both born and raised in the buffer states. Both would write voluminously and attract a huge following, and both would be challenged as heretics in the West. But the differences between them were much wider than the similarities. In fact, in theology and temperament, each seemed a polar opposite of the other. The older of the two was Titian, born about 110 of pagan parents, probably in Adiabene's capital city of Arbella, east of the Tigris. He was converted to Christianity as a young man and became a student of the eloquent Christian evangelist Justin in Rome. When Justin was martyred, Titian returned to his native land and found it flooded with assorted stories of Jesus' life, many dubious or obviously untrue. He therefore pr produced a book combining the accounts of all four Gospels into one, which he called the Diatessaron. It was written in Syriac, the working language of both Syria and Mesopotamia, a version of Jesus' language, Aramaic. Tatian's Diatessaron became the first Gospel read in the Mesopotamian church. Though he was an eminent and respected New Testament scholar, Tatian's other teachings were much more controversial. He set up a school or community in or near Arbella, whose graduates founded a strict sect called the Encretites, which forbade the eating of meat and the drinking of wine, pronounced sex evil even within marriage. These teachings were condemned first in the West, later in the East, as false. They were in noble contrast with the other highly respected Christian authority in uh, Mesopotamia. Bardason, known in the West as Bardasanus, Sanis, the son of wealthy parents believed to have fled from the Persian court during his succession dispute, he was raised in prestige and luxury at Edessa and schooled with Osirene's crown prince. Bardason shone both mentally and physically, becoming an authority on Persian philosophy and a superb archer in a city renowned for its skill with the bow. Colorful stories were told of his aptitude. Once, during a visit of Roman emperor, Bardason had a youth held up a shield, firing arrow after arrow, Bardason created a portrait of the youth in the shield, 
The story survives in the Roman account of his visit. One day, Bardason happened to pass Edessa's Christian church and heard Hystaspis, a bishop of Edessa, preaching inside. He became fascinated with the idea Hystaspis expressed and was soon baptized. Like many converts, he became an outspoken champion of his new faith, distinguishing himself in confront confrontational dialogues with the city's dominant pagans, and he was made a deacon in the church. But, like Tatian, Bardation's writings got him into trouble and were finally condemned even by his mentor, Estaspis. Striving to make one great world religion, as with others for the next 2,000 years, he sought to find common grounds between Christianity, astrology, Persian philosophy, and cosmology, and wound up publishing wild speculations of a 30-person trinity and a theology in which the father marries the feminine spirit to produce a son, though, but not out of the Virgin Mary. All of this was denounced as false by later Christian writers. Curiously, however, little of it appears in Bardation's one surviving work, the Book of the Laws of Countries, which chiefly depicts Jesus as bestowing freedom upon the human race. Bardason died in 222, and like Tatian, was followed by a sect, the Bardasonites, which lasted, by some accounts, for another 400 years. Unlike Tatians and Incretites, however, the Bardasonites did not condemn sex, for they believed sex purifying. Christian progress in the second buffer state, Adivene, is much sketchier, though it was much it was without taking place. Adiabene lay east of Osraene, beyond the Tigris, its capital city of Arbella, now Arbel in Iraq, the reputed site of Tatian's community and school. The 6th century document called the Chronicle of Arbella speaks of Christian merchants introducing the faith there in the 1st century and reports the martyrdom of Simeon, 2nd bishop of Arbella, in 123. A Persian account dated 11 years later records a barbarian invasion from the Caucasus being halted with the help of an Adiabene satrap named Rakbat, described as a Christian convert. Christian accounts mention two original missionaries, one named Mari, the other, Kida. They also mention a bishop, Samsun, put to death later by the Zoroastrians, though many scholars dispute this martyrdom. This would be the first Christian encounter with Persia's great religion, whose practice survives to this day in India, where the Zoroastrians are known as the Parsis. Under Persians' Parthian, Parthian kings, Zoroastrianism was a particularly tolerant religion. A century later, however, with the fall of the, dynasty, Persian, the Parthian dynasty, that was to change radically. For one accomplishment, the Edessan quarter Bardation might very well take it to credit. His childhood friend became Abgard VIII, king of Osrani, uh, known in the Roman records as a holy man, and very probably a Christian, who is credited with prohibiting the bloody rite of castration that characterized Osrani's uh, ancient pagan religion. The evidence for his Christian Christianity is good, says historian Moffat, and this would reliably make him the first Christian king. The Romans honored Abgar VIII with a visit, state visit to Rome and conferred upon him a Roman name. He died in 212, and the Romans invited his son and successor, Abgar IX, for another state visit. However, he was arrested on his arrival, deposed, and imprisoned in chains. That was the end of the Austrian kingdom. The Romans made it, made it a colony, demonstrating that they still didn't trust Arabs. Whom they did trust were the people of Mesopotamia's third buffer state, the Armenians, whose story 
one of the most stirring in Christian history, will begin in the next volume.